Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, running back holdouts and trade demands don't always work out. And what history tells us is that timing is everything. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. All right, let's go. I'm overprepared again. I have papers everywhere. I've got notes. I've got stuff in my phone. Let's go. NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in. This show is for you, for all of you, okay? And if you know this stuff, if I ever meet you, I will give you a cookie. And if I don't have one in my pocket, I'll take you somewhere and buy you one. But other than that, remember, there's people that don't always know this stuff. So my job is to be there for them. This show is for those who don't know as much about NFL history, so I'm here to do three things, and that is enlighten, teach, and learn. This is the Behind the Mic Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Neal Jr. Yeah, it's me. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports, Belly Up Media. Uh, We're all a part of the Belly Up Sports Podcast Network, and go to our website, bellyupsports.com, and check us out. Not just the shows, we've got merch, we've also got written writers uh i think i might want to try my hand at that i think i love writing i really do but anyway uh you know you catch our shows all of them especially mine on our home base of megaphone apple podcast spotify google podcast amazon music stitcher iHeartRadio, and more as well as youtube all the favorites so look it started from square one last week you know starting last week we were talking about running backs and how there's not a lot of Jim Browns and, um, uh, you know, Earl Campbell's, Emmitt Smith's. The way that I worded that was actually not the right way, okay? We do have some guys like that. We've named them. We've got Derrick Henry and Nick Chubb and guys like Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley and Aaron Jones and Josh Jacobs. We've got guys that can run the football. They're just not as valued as they used to be. Okay, so I apologize to any and everybody that was offended, (laughs) if anybody was. um, I said what I said. I'm not necessarily taking it back, but I think that it was it may have been misconstrued. Big word. Look it up. And look, they're not valued the way that they used to be. 
I'm going to give you a number, which some people may already know. I didn't. Okay, I didn't know the numbers on franchise uh, franchise tags. I did not know this. Um, but I'm studying for last week's show, getting ready for this one, because this one is telling you about what running back holdouts and the history of how it has probably failed more than it has actually worked, uh, trade demands and all that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, just running backs, just running backs. But I'm studying about this and how the running back market has changed. And we do have all of these different guys I just named in some of the latter, like Saquon Barkley. You have Tony Pollard, Josh Jacobs. All three of them have signed their tags. We've told you about the Giants and Saquon Barkley. Josh Jacobs finally signed his. Uh, he's got a one-year, $12 million deal until next year. We'll see what happens. And it's not even a guarantee that he's going to get what he really wants unless he goes out on the open market. But you know, hopefully he didn't get tagged again. Uh, but we'll give you the rules on that. Tony Pollard, yeah, fractured leg, but he should be back. And um, he signed his franchise tag. And he had the one great year under his belt, even though he shared some starts with Zeke Elliott. Uh, he actually was more pro more productive. You saw it on the field. Uh, but the whole thing is this. So what's the whole point of what I've been talking about? A running back demands a trade, or he holds out for the most part. It's what we see and hear about the most. Uh, it rarely works out for the player. I mean, you see what's going on with Jonathan Taylor. He's in his uh, rookie contract year. He's wanting to get paid a little bit more. He's already seen Quentin Nelson, you know, the all-pro level center. And also Shaq Barrett, I think it is. Um, not Shaq Barrett. Don't want to get confused with Shaq Barrett that plays for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I'm talking about Shaquille Leonard. So I mean, these guys got their money. Um, but then at the same time, obviously, he's looking for a deal, too, because he's been really productive. He led the league in rushing at one point. Last year, he had some injuries. Of course, last week, we talked about the reason why these guys – are more devalued now more than ever. Even though they can tote the pill, they get hurt. They're the most injured position in the league at this point. And then on top of that, it's a passing league. So the numbers, tag-wise, tell you the truth of what, er what, let's just say GMs and owners, what they think on the level of, and maybe even some coaches, the level of importance of that position. And the market is what bears it. It's what tells you exactly what's going on. Um, and here's the thing. It doesn't always work out for the player, but it also doesn't always work out for the team if they pay the guy. You know, they may break off, you know, a little piece of change for them, but they don't always get what they are supposed to get in return, production. So first thing I need to do is explain what a franchise tag is for those who do not know. Kick the music. What is it? What is a franchise tag? And this is, uh, I went on uh, MGM.com. It's one of the first things I found, and it really simplified it. So franchise tag is a special kind of one-year contract that only exists in the NFL. Now, once per offseason, a franchise may elect to tag a player, which basically locks them into a non-negotiated salary for the upcoming season. Only players who are about to become free agents can be hit with the franchise tag. And those tags pay that player either one of two ways. And it's based on one of two ways, rather. The average of what the top five players at their position make or 120% of what the player has previously made. Whichever one is more, 
that's what they're going to get. Now, since we're talking about running backs, last week I told you how the franchise tag for running backs has actually dropped from nearly $11 million down to $10,091,000, I believe, is what it is now. So that means the top five players' salaries at the running back position have dropped. Here's the other question. Why do teams use them in the first place? Well, they want to retain the player. If neither side, the player or the team, can come to an agreement on a longer-term deal, they're going to use that tag. And there are two types. Exclusive, which means, Mr. Player, you cannot negotiate with any other franchise, or the non-exclusive, which is the opposite. You can negotiate with other teams, but that team can match. Okay? They can match it. So when a player's tag, it locks them in for that one year. So the value of running backs as of 2023, this is what blew my mind. Okay? 11 positions in the league. The franchise tag for a running back is 10th on the list. 10th. There's only one position that is lower. Kickers and punters. They make $5.3 million. And they're next to last. It's crazy. It, It really is. Also, remember those percentages that I gave you when it comes to team winning position, uh, uh, percentage, making the playoffs, that kind of thing. And it goes hand in hand with the way players are drafted, especially in the first round. Okay. The highest cap hits at each position. And this is what they were, right? Edge rusher, quarterback, tackle, wide receiver, corner, and then running back. You see what I'm going with? And look, this is how it lines up as far as the order of franchise compensation. The highest is quarterback at $32.4 million. After that, you have linebackers. Linebackers make $20.9 million. Then wide receivers at 19. Defensive ends, defensive tackles, they're in the $18 million range along with offensive linemen. Isn't that crazy? So, you know, well, defensive ends actually in 19. Uh, they're at 19. Offensive linemen. 18.2. And then you have cornerbacks and safeties at 18 and 14. Then tight ends at 11.3. Then you got the running backs and then uh, the people that they call non-football players. So the actual football players, if you want to say it like that, they're at the very bottom of the list are running backs. They're at the bottom. That That is a little disrespectful. I understand that they're not... Hmm, they're not as in much use, but then too, when you go back to looking at Super Bowls and stuff like that, you don't have Super Bowl running backs anymore. I was watching a preseason game what Sunday, and it was Mark Ingram was there in New Orleans, and he's pointing at the camera and smiling and talking to owners. Stop disrespecting the position. You need a running back. You know they're more value in Super Bowl. No, they they don't. <laughs> You can get Isaiah Pachinko in the seventh round <laughs> to team him along with a guy uh, that looks like a wide receiver in my man, Mr. McKinnon. So, I mean, you don't necessarily need a big-time running back. And the guy that the Chiefs selected with the last pick in the first round uh, his rookie year, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, he's been unseated already. Now, let's just say if he was like another Maurice Jones-Drew and ran for 13, 1,400 yards per season and then wanted to up his money, I, I don't know if they would do it. There's no guarantee. So, with all that being said, you have to see and understand what running backs are 
where they're coming from. They feel disrespected, and I get it, but timing is everything. With Jonathan Taylor, he wanted to get his pay. He, he wanted his money, right? But when you look at that list, linebackers and offensive linemen, they are <laughs> more important. Quentin Nelson and Shaquille Leonard, they are both more important. I mean, it's that sounds weird to say, doesn't it? When the guy that's the star that gets gets the highlights, and pretty much you look at him, he's the best player on the team, offensively or defensively, and he's not getting paid yet. But there's still time. But understand this. There's nothing new under the sun. Players have been trying this stuff for years. I'm going to give you some examples with some backdrop and stories and then some uh, quick hitters as well. So we get through this show. So let's go all the way back to 1925, shall we? The best player in college football played for the University of Illinois. Red Grange, Pro Football Hall of Famer. Kick the music. So there was a champagne businessman by the name of Charles C. Powell. You know, that's the guy. Uh, C.C. Powell, Cash and Carry Powell, that's P-Y-L-E. That's what they called him. So he basically ended up being Red Grange's agent. And, you know, through him being in the Champagne area, going to the Virginia Theater, which Red Grange frequented, I guess. He goes to George Hallis, says, do you want the biggest college football star? And knowing that the NFL was hemorrhaging and needing, they was hemorrhaging money and they was needing some notoriety, some eyeballs on a sport that was far below boxing, College football, of course, and professional baseball, they needed a draw. And this guy was going to do it. Powell had talked to the guy, Red Grange, at his theater one time when he went to go see a movie or picture show, whatever you want to call it. And he, they brokered the deal from there. They talked to Hallis and Sternman. And it's like, yes, we'll do it. And in the end, $100,000 and a 19-game barnstorming tour, which included a couple well, let's just say it, five regular season games. I had no idea that Red Grange didn't even play the entire season uh, for the Bears. So he signs with them the day that he finishes his last college, uh, pretty much at, right after he finishes his last college game against Ohio State, didn't go back to school. But it was a great financial benefit to him to have done that. He made $100,000, actually $125,000, according to the book Papa Bear, um, and looking at this, 19 games, that was unprecedented. And, and so was the money. The president didn't make $100,000. That was a lot of money in 1925. And when you total everything up between the $125,000 he made, between he and Powell splitting the gate receipts with George Hallis and, and Dutch Thurman, they made $125,000. At least it's saying that Greg Grange did. And then on top of that, he had a movie deal and he had some endorsements that paid him an additional 85 grand. $210,000 was what he brought in just for that one year. It was amazing money and, and it all worked out for him. He got paid more than anybody in the league coming in, okay? Forget veterans and all that stuff. Remember, pro football is under the foot of college football and that's what he got. And as of 2004 money, that 210 was equivalent to him making $5 million. So that was a lot of money for the time. Of course, he got greedy. Well, I, I, I think 
it, it, this is just opinion and this isn't an opinion show but between Powell and, and Grange let's just say they wanted more and that more was we want a piece of the Bears and we want more money and Hallis said uh, not a chance in Hades bro kick rocks with no shoes and then they ended up starting their own professional league in the end uh, the American Football League the first AFL which only lasted a year folded they had to come back crawling back to the NFL in 1927 now remember 1925 the New York Giants had just started Tim Mara not only owned the Giants but he had territorial rights to New York <laughs> Powell who had threatened you know, because he wanted to start a team in New York alongside Mara. Mara was like, no way. We're already trying to get eyeballs on the game. I'm trying to make money for my city uh, with these fans. I'm trying to keep them for myself. Well, in 1927, he says, all right, yeah, you can play, but you can only play when we're not playing at home. And they didn't even share the same stadium. Powell had gotten a five-year lease with Yankee Stadium for his New York football Yankees. And of course, Mara and the Giants played at the Polo Grounds. Well, I mean, Grange, it didn't work out that well at the time because pretty much he was gone for a year and a half because he tore up his knee four games into the 1927 season. Didn't come back to the Chicago Bears. Powell and his uh, and Grange's arrangement, their contract was already up, so he was open to whatever. He goes back to George Hallis. He rejoins the Bears, not nearly the player that he used to be, but still was good on defense. And they went to three straight championships. One, two, lost the last one uh, in 1934, the sneakers game. Uh, and then that was it. But at least, I mean, the guy was a pro football Hall of Famer, even in those seasons that he came back to play for the Chicago Bears. He was good, but man, he, he wanted a little bit too much. Didn't work out. Well, the next year in 1935, the next subject, actually was born that was Jim Taylor Hall of Fame running back that was with the Green Bay Packers for 10 seasons right well for nine seasons played 10 years in the league well for those first nine going into 1966 quiet is kept Jim Taylor was a guy that wanted his money now when he first came into the league it was a little bit different for him he was getting paid $95,000 plus excuse me $9,500, $9,500 plus a $1,000 bonus in 1958 when he was drafted. Well, I was reading a New York Times article by Ira Burkow, which basically featured Jim Taylor talking about the NFL's 1982 player strike. And there was a couple things that I got out of it. He talked about the players, how they played for the level of the game when he was around. But then he also, in the same breath, agreed with the players during the strike. And I quote from that article, Taylor said, all power to you boys, you deserve a fair share. That's what he wanted from Vince Lombardi. You know, Vince Lombardi, I did not know this, but he talked about it in the, in the article, did not specify the year, but Lombardi tore up his contract a couple years in. He did turn the Packers around from a one-win team, told management, I want a new contract. And if you don't give me one, I'm going somewhere else to coach. But you couldn't do that with Vince because Vince was not only the head coach, he was also the GM. A very shrewd negotiator of contracts. And remember, by 1966, well, one, Paul Horning and Jim Taylor were the backfield, halfback and fullback. Horning was a 10-year vet, a nine-year vet. 
uh, on uh, for Jim Taylor, and they were aging. Let's just be real. But in the NFL's uh, battle for college players with the AFL at the time, they went to the highest bidder. And they drafted, well, Vince Lombardi drafted, two running backs, a halfback and a fullback. Halfback Donnie Anderson from Texas Tech, he got 600 grand. Jim Grabowski out of, yep, Red Grange's alma mater, Illinois, he got $250,000. Do you think Paul Horning and Jim Taylor were making that kind of money? No, they were not. And halfway through the season, Taylor is highly upset and basically announced that he'd be playing out his option because he was not being able to renegotiate his contract with Vince Lombardi. Lombardi's like, no, we're not doing that. And Lombardi was furious because he's like, oh, you're going to leave. Yeah, I'm leaving because you're not going to pay me what I think that I'm owed. Now, just to be fair to Vince Lombardi, Taylor was, you know, he was a five time thousand yard rusher and he did that five seasons in a row won the 1962 nfl mvp but the problem was the dude's yards per carry was around on average was about five yards a carry at that time now in back-to-back seasons in 65 and 66 he's only averaging six and a half y- i mean excuse me three and a half yards per carry so you're aging okay you're aging and if anyone knows about that super bowl it was the first super bowl that will, you know, that the Kansas City Chiefs played against the Packers and got the beats. They got beat down. Horning didn't even play. What does that tell you? Let alone start. He didn't even play. Taylor played and had a good game, and then he was out of there. Uh, Hall of Fame career of Jim Taylor, five-time Pro Bowler, four-time champ, 1962 NFL MVP. The perfect draw for the expansion New Orleans Saints. The guy went to LSU. He's from Baton Rouge. You know what I mean? And then you had the end of the Roselle War, which they had to compensate for the loss of Jim Taylor, which was a first-round pick. The Packers got the Saints' first-round pick plus a player that ended up being Phil Vandersee. But the Saints never got out of Taylor the production anywhere near what he gave the Packers. He signed a four-year, $400,000 contract which there were no guarantees so he didn't get all that money he only played one year 390 yards and 14 starts a three-yard average in 1968 he was relegated to special teams and then refused to play in an exhibition game he retired instead he said no i'm out i'm gone no thanks i'm good so you know you have those kind of examples there right but then you have some that actually did work Let's go rapid fire. So Emmitt Smith, he was coming off of, you know, leading the league and rushing back-to-back years with, what, 1,500-yard season, a 1,700-yard season. And then he led the league in rushing touchdowns in 92 with 18. He wanted to get paid. He's like, Jerry Jones, I need my money. Jerry was not trying to pay him. So Emmitt famously sat out the entire 1993 training camp and even going into the first two games before Jerry decided – to put pen to paper to say, all right, here you go. Here's the check. Come on back. We're 0-2, and, and we just lost to the Bills at home, who they eventually would beat in the Super Bowl. And so what did Smith do in return? He was another all the, – uh, the second – excuse me. Yeah, the second of four straight all-pro seasons. No, the third of four straight all-pro seasons, something like that. But, I mean, M is a Hall of Famer. So you know his credentials. You should, right? Well, he's an all-pro 
that season. He led the Cowboys to a 12-2 finish in the regular season. Remember that that year, Troy Aikman suffered yet another one of those really bad concussions, and he was really not good in the Super Bowl when they went to play the Bills a second time down in Atlanta. And so not only did Emmitt Smith lead the league in rushing, he led the Cowboys to the Super Bowl, and he had gotten Super Bowl MVP. So, you know, it worked. It worked. And then he runs for 11. He ended up running for 1,000 yards 11 years in a row. Who else has done that? And he had over 14,000 yards after he signed that contract. You tell me. Was he worth it? Yes. Marshall Falk, St. Louis Rams in 99, he wanted to renegotiate his contract when he was still an Indianapolis Colt after, you know, what he had two years remaining on it. So they traded him instead, got something back for him, and then all he does for St. Louis is run for 1,300 and have 1,000 yards receiving. And, uh, you know what, he had uh, gotten the Super Bowl ring out of the deal. He won MVP, NFL MVP in 2000, was a three-time All-Pro, and we know he's in the Hall of Fame. Corey Dillon. Corey Dillon, the Cincinnati Bengals, the lowly Bengals, right, in 2000. Three straight times running for 1K. And he got his first Pro Bowl the year before. So he's like, okay, so time to cut this check. You know, I'm, I'm your most productive guy. What's up? They signed him uh, a one-year, what was it, a, a $3 million deal, which basically um, doubled his rookie contract, which was three years and $1.7 million. A lot of the details weren't, uh, it wasn't a one-year deal. Uh, I, I, I think I put that down wrong, but he did get a multi-year deal with some money that was guaranteed. He was getting $3 million a year. Okay, so, and in 2000, he had a career high in yards and he made another Pro Bowl. And then he had, it was followed by two more seasons of great running, over 1,300 yards and another Pro Bowl and before he ended up going and playing in the Super Bowl with the Patriots and having over 1,600 yards. He was productive all the way through his career. Now, here's one uh, or a couple that didn't turn out the way that they want to. Well, you know, this one in particular. Dwayne Thomas of the Dallas Cowboys back in 1971. This was one of the best running backs that never was. I know you got that 30 for 30. The best that never was was Marcus Dupree. This dude was a 6'2", 6'3", 220-pound dude that could run through you or around you. He was a Jim Brown clone that had a really bad attitude. <laughs> he just did. He just did. I mean, he uh, in 1970, he was a rookie, and he won Rookie of the Year, leading the Cowboys with over 800 yards rushing. Keep in mind, it wasn't always 1,000-yard backs. Okay, remember that. This wasn't a regular occurrence yet, right? And he led the league with, what, 5.3-yard uh, yards per carry? He was splitting time with several backs. You had Walt Garrison, Calvin Hill, Dan Reeves. Yes, the guy who ended up being head coach of the Denver Broncos and, of course, the Giants and the Falcons. Well, I mean, in Super Bowl V, you know, they had he had a, a pretty decent game, had a key fumble that some would say wasn't a fumble, but he finished the season on top. He says that he was broke. He, was, he had a $5,000 contract. Okay, with that being said, players, I say 
you know, coaches and owners were first and players were second. I, I almost want to put players on a lower tier. But he was dealing with probably one of the cheapest team presidents in history. This guy did not pay anybody. You have a guy like Bob Lilly, who was making $27,000 per year. And this is a guy that was an all pro, the best defensive tackle in pro football at the time. He was in what, year 11 at the time, going into year 12. And he, they, would, they wouldn't pay anybody. As good as Roger Staubach and all these other guys were, they wouldn't pay him. They weren't paying anybody. And here's the key. So he talks about in America's game, talking about the Super Bowl, the focus on the 1971 Dallas Cowboys that won it all. Well, he, Dwayne Thomas, talks about a friend that he had, Don Parrish, who played linebacker for the St. Louis Cardinals. He said that he made Rookie of the Year on his team in 1970. And he got a $25,000 check. And he told Tex he saw the check stub. Tex said, nah, yeah, just pulling your leg. Well, I mean, if you watch that, you can tell that the players, you know how they're speaking about Tex Ram. Yeah, this dude wasn't paying none of us. He, he was cheap and, and he knew it. And so Dwayne Thomas, who wanted to renegotiate his contract and, and ended up, you know, sitting out and all that stuff. Well, they did not want to deal with him any longer. So just that quickly, they actually traded him to the New England Patriots. He only stayed with the Patriots for five days. Five days later, they're like, Pete Rozelle, please, Kamish, can you reverse this thing? And Pete Rozelle did because he was that, for lack of a better way to say it, very insubordinate in their eyes. He wouldn't do what he was told, and he was he was rebelling. Now, quiet is kept at West Texas, where he came from. He had a little bit of a reputation coming out of there, too, of, of not really wanting to follow everything. I even read a story because the dude was, he did some crazy things. But, I'm, well, you know what? That story, that'll be for another day. Well, nah, I'll just tell it. I mean, some people do some things worse or better. He had a roommate that was a fellow rookie in 1970, and he was calling long distance and, and charging it to, to his roommate. You know, I mean, that's stuff that you do to haze people, right? But this dude said he was broke and didn't have no money, and this is during rookie camp. So what do you think he was trying to do? Save every penny that he could. You know, he went out and performed, but they still weren't going to pay him. So, yes, the deal was reversed, and he was sent backpacking to the Dallas Cowboys. And according to Bob Lilly, he thought, and I think others did as well, the way he talked is that, oh, they didn't know he was traded. They just thought he was suspended or something because of the rift that he had with the front office. That wasn't the case. He goes back to the Cowboys and decides he's not going to talk to nobody. Plays the entire season in silence. The entire season. But the dude was still running with the big dogs. He led them in rushing again. He led the league with 11 rushing touchdowns in 14 games. And then on top of that, in their 24-3 win, in Super Bowl six against the no-name defense of the Miami Dolphins and Don Shula, he had 95 yards rushing and arguably could have been the Super Bowl MVP. Could have been. And so, you know, it, it was just one of those situations that it was really, really weird. Uh, after one year, and he was just that, oh, man, that much of a jerk and that much of uh, just insubordinate, even with the Cowboys, to the point where it's like, look, you're not going to pay me. I'm going to perform on the field, but off the field and in the locker room, 
don't talk to him. I don't, he had one guy, I think it was, oh man, which offensive lineman it was, I think his last name, Licio, was the only one that he talked about, I mean, talked to, and he may have said some words here and there to other people, and he responded to people like, you know, leave me alone, get on out of here, you know, with smart, illicky answers, and so he just didn't get along with everybody for obvious reasons, and that next season, he comes in in 1972, and he's still insubordinate, and... Tom Landry said, that's it. Get him out of here. And they sent a package to the San Diego Chargers, whom he didn't even play at all with. No stat line at all. And he finished his career in 73 and 74 with Washington, and then he was out of the league. You know, he lasted four years. Four years. Four years. And like I said, him being compared to Jim Brown, this was like the best that never was. And it was all because his attitude, the, you know, the way he treated his teammates as well as his head coach and the front office because he wanted some money. Well, there you go. Well, these next two guys have something in common, a very long break. Then you got John Riggins, Washington, in 1980. He decided he wanted more money too. But before the Diesel made the Hall of Fame, um, you know, the same year the Cowboys won that Super Bowl, those, that 71 season, Riggins was the first running back taken uh, by the New York Jets in that draft. And by 76, he was a free agent. Even after rushing for a then team record, you know, 1,005 yards, they let him walk. They let him walk. He signs with Washington with a five-year, $1.5 million deal. But then by 1980, he wanted to renegotiate that contract, which he was getting paid about 300 grand per season, per year. He wanted 500, but not just $500,000. He wanted to be guaranteed. So, yeah. Uh, but Washington refused. Riggins ended up retiring. So, in his retirement, Joe Gibbs was hired from the San Diego Chargers, that is. And he pays Riggins a visit at his home in Kansas in the summer of 1981. And during that conversation, Riggins is pretty much saying, yeah, you know, I think I want to come back. And he told him, quote, unquote, I'll make you famous. And Gibbs thought the guy, that was too much of a me guy type attitude. So in the back of his mind, he's thinking I'm going to trade him. Well, Riggins actually threw a wrench in that a while later when he did call him up and say, yeah, I want to come back, but here's the catch. I want a no trade clause on, on top of me, you know, you cutting a check. Riggins got money, but here's the thing. He was broke, so he had to come back. So I don't know if he got what he really, really wanted. Um, and he was already in his 30s, so there you go. But uh, in 82, he set a then NFL playoff record in rushing yards during the postseason, won MVP in Super Bowl in 17. And then eventually, at 33 years old now, he did this. The next year, he's an uh, a all-pro NFL record at the time, 24 rushing touchdowns. Then he made another Pro Bowl after that, running for 1,300 yards. He's doing this at 34 years old before he finally dropped off. In 84, he led the league in touchdowns. So things worked out a little bit. He got a little bit of money. I don't think he got what he really, really wanted, but he got paid and he got to play with a better team, a better franchise on top of that. But that uh, some people make that choice to sit out an entire season. Just ask Le'Veon Bell. I mean, the guy, we know what happened with him. He had an 1,800 all-purpose year, uh, yard year in just 12 games. And he wanted to get broke off as the best running back in the game, which he was. 
He skipped training camp in 2017, but he did sign the tag, played on it, wasn't all pro again, and then the Steelers tagged him again after the season. I think that was a mistake, but they was trying to renegotiate to actually make him the highest paid running back. Eventually you find out. Now, here, here's the thing. They tagged him again, and of course, Bell says, you know what, don't even worry about it. I'm out. He sat the entire 2018 season. He was going to earn $14.5 million if there was no long-term agreement, but he's like, no. And I'm going to quote from CBS Sports' Brian Diardo's, Diardo's article. Everyone thought Bell would do the same after he again couldn't come to terms with Pittsburgh on a long-term deal heading into the 2018 season, and they were wrong. Bell never returned to the Steelers. He sat out the entire season as Pittsburgh failed to make the playoffs for the first time since 2013. Hmm. While the Steelers didn't rule out reopening contract talks with Bell's representatives in that offseason, Pittsburgh reportedly never spoke to Bell, who instead signed a four-year deal with the Jets, the New York Jets, that would end up totaling $61 million, including $27 guaranteed. And this was 61 million with incentives. While the Steelers did reportedly offer Bell a five-year deal that would have made him the highest paid back in the league, in league history, that is, the lack of guaranteed money in those contracts was ultimately what forced Bell to sit out and eventually leave town. Isn't that crazy? That I mean, you had the best back in football, but you know, there it is. I got to I got to speed up a little bit here. All right, so Melvin Gordon with the San Diego Chargers, he talks about it to this day. He just got released by the Baltimore uh, Ravens, by the way. Um, don't know where he'll end up if he ends up signing this season, but he regrets not going back to the Chargers. And this is another Chargers running back that never had a thousand yards. And here's the crazy thing: five years with uh, with the Chargers. He only had a thousand yards. I'm lying. He actually had a thousand yards once. Okay, he had two Pro Bowls. Right. Crazy thing is, he only averaged over four yards a carry once in his career, and he wanted to get paid though. He wanted money with his three-point yard per carry self. I mean, that's crazy. But serious thing, he sat out until Week Four of that season, and guess who took his place? Yeah, the starting running back to this day, Austin Eckler, the All Pro, and he ended up signing with the Broncos for 16 million. He got 13 and a half guaranteed, but he never got the money that he was really looking for. That's crazy. Now, what about these guys that they had never gotten hurt? Jamal Anderson, remember him with the Atlanta Falcons? I know Dan Reeves does because in '98 they went to the Super Bowl, and that year was what his second or uh, third year in a row running for a thousand yards after being a seventh round draft pick out of Utah. Uh, in 99, he wanted to get paid, and they broke him off. He had 1,846 yards and 14 touchdowns. First team All-Pro in 1988. They go to the Super Bowl. Uh, after a two-week holdout, they sign him. He got five years, 32 mil, and a seven and a half guaranteed. Week two, tears his ACL in his right knee. Yeah. No contact. Then he tears, a couple years later, he, he comes back, but then he tears the the the. ACL in his left knee non-contact and then he was done that that didn't work out for the Falcons did it 
It looked good, but the crazy thing, no contact injuries. You don't know the future. You have no idea. What about Larry Johnson of Kansas City? Back-to-back 1,700-yard seasons. He scored 37 touchdowns in that period between 2005 and 2006. 2007, can I get a check? They give him the check, he gets hurt. It's never the same. Never the same again. Mojo, Maurice Jones-Drew, yeah, NFL Network, Jacksonville Jaguars. In 2009 and 2010, he made his first two Pro Bowls, and he rushed for, what, 1,300 yards both of those seasons? And then he decided, uh, you know what, let's turn it up a bit. He had a career high, over 1,600 yards in 2011. All-pro guy, right? Heading into year seven, at the age of 27 years old, he wanted a new contract too. Didn't get it. He returned after a 38-day holdout, only to injure his foot later on in that season. Never was the same. Never was the same. And sometimes the second team gives you that contract and it doesn't always work out. Even after the first team that dropped the ball did it. Eric Dickerson with the Rams. So Hall of Fame running back, first running back taken in 1983. And he played four years for the Rams. And in those four years, he led the league in rushing three times. And those three years, including that 1984 season where he set the NFL rushing record, with 2,100 yards, 2,104 yards. Those three seasons were in the top eight in NFL history. They didn't want to pay him. So he ends up you know, holding out, misses the first two games uh, of the season in 85, 47-day holdout, comes back, still a pro bowler. Uh, 86, he leads the league again, and then they end up trading him You know, after, after all of that. They trade him, three-team trade to Indianapolis, he runs wild in Indy for a minute, but then he wants another contract from Indy. He wanted a $1 million per year type contract. He did get that from Indianapolis. And according to the Washington Post, I believe the deal was four years and $4.6 million. He got it. He got $1.4 you know, per year. But here's the thing. <laughs> even after all of that he did, even up to 1988, <sighs> guess what? He wanted another contract. He wasn't happy. They gave it to him. And then between him being hurt, between him being injured and uh, being injured and suspended for two parts of seasons, he was done. Done. Fork. Insert fork. He was done. Now, as far as the Rams was concerned, you know, there was a bad relationship with the Rams until they they finally came together in 1999 he even got a Super Bowl ring out of the whole deal that was cool that was cool they buried the hatchet they returned uh, retired his jersey I always think of him as a Ram I never think of him really as a Colt or a Raider or a Falcon which that's where he ended up after he left Indianapolis so what did we learn today you know Red Grange he got paid more than anybody in the history of the league to that point and in his first year on top of all that he still wanted more he, they got greedy. Couple of reasons why George Hallis wasn't going to do it. One, he really couldn't afford it. Two, because you, you had the depression that wiped a lot of people out, right? Timing is everything, though. Jim Taylor ended the league in 1958, not 1966. So he couldn't get what the Gold Dust Twins is what they call Jim Grabowski uh, and Donnie Anderson. That's that. I mean. He wasn't getting $650,000, $600,000, $250,000 like they, they were getting. Uh, but at the end of the career, I mean, you're trying to get paid. 
Players are getting paid because of the fight between the AFL and NFL. Timing is everything. Dwayne Thomas, you want to restructure your deal after one season. You were drafted by the wrong team. Okay, Dwayne Thomas was drafted to a team that had a team president that was a cheapo. Just simple as that. Players that have been in the league more than he had been, like Bob Lilly, were getting paid peanuts. They were still playing their hearts out. They weren't giving everybody the silence. Now, I understand you got to get people's attention. Didn't really work out for him. He got a Super Bowl out of it. They won, and he was a key cog in that. See, both seasons, back-to-back years, they went to the Super Bowl. Think about that. With this guy at running back, as a rookie, and even in his second year, leading the league in rushing touchdowns. So, they weren't paying nobody, though. They weren't going to pay. If they didn't pay Bob Lilly, they were not going to pay you. Timing is everything. Bob Lilly was there since the first day they put on a Dallas star on a helmet. So, teams nor players can see in the future. You get burned by injuries. Jamal Anderson, Larry Johnson, that didn't work out for the team. Uh, Mojo, that didn't work out for him. Timing is everything. So holdouts don't always work. Just ask John Riggins and Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon, yeah, he got some guaranteed money, but he stunk and he didn't even finish the contract. Ended up bouncing around to more teams and hasn't been in the league in over a year. So... You know, there you go. John Riggins was broke. But timing is everything. The right coach came to his door. <laughs> and he at least got to continue to play football and probably finish. He not probably he finished his career. And people know him as a wa- playing for Washington than with the Jets. Timing is everything. A few times it actually does work out. You get an Emmitt Smith or a Marshall Falk or a Corey Dillon. Okay. They each got paid and eventually got a Super Bowl ring out of the deal. Eric Dickerson did too, but that was because he made up with the team that he was first with. Okay, timing is everything. So what's the solution in all this? As I wrap up, if the guy is clearly good, okay, this is just me saying for the first two seasons, if he's that low on the franchise tag list, how about renegotiating after two years if he's that great? Go short, not long. You know, but uh, you do the math. These guys only have a max of about, what, three to four years. And most of the best of them max out around five to six. You don't see Emmitt Smith's guys running for 11, (laughs) 1,000-yard seasons in a row. And you don't see that, you know. And you probably won't see it because we're we're throwing, we're past crazy these days, which I love. But I like seeing a a nice run. (laughs) I do. So we'll fax them out during that first contract negotiation. After that, they got to prove otherwise. You don't see many Emmitt Smiths and Jim Browns, Walter Paytons. There's not a lot of guys on that list. But common sense tells you that your good running back is a four-year guy. I mean, if they are good, secure the bag. But other than that, running backs out there, if you're listening, timing is everything. That's it. References thanks to profootballreference.com sporttrack.com a couple of New York Times articles this one Ira Burkow October 23rd 1982 players Taylor X Packer in players corner and also this one by Gerald Eskenazi September excuse me November 1st 1987 Dickerson traded to Colts also betgm.com what does franchise tag mean in the NFL this one was written by Chase Kitty July 26th 2023 also cbssports.com's 
Brian Diardo, July 25th, 2023, ranking the 12 ugliest holdouts in NFL history as Josh Jacobs and Chris Jones's absences linger. Also, Horseshoe Heroes, the Colts revisiting the Marshall Falk trade with Rams. This one by Jerry Trotta, and that's August 12th, 2020. NFL.com, Michael Fred, uh, excuse me, Michael Fabriano, a history of running back holdouts and statistical decline. And this one, Packers team historian Cliff Christie on Packers.com. Where did Jim Taylor stand with Vince Lombardi? <laughs> also, the Washington Post, the staff wrote this one: Dickerson signs three-year Colts Pact. All right, and also we got a magazine in here, Sports Illustrated Vault, the SI staff. This one. September 1st, 1983, this article is written under the headline of They Bought His Act, Hook, Line, and Sinker. That was pretty good. That, that was a good one. And also a couple of books, The Dallas Cowboys, The Outrageous History of the Biggest, Loudest, and Most Hated Best Football Team in America, written by Joe Nick Patowski. The book, Papa Bear, The Life and Legacy of George Hallis. This one was written by jeff davis this has been the behind the mic podcast again i'm your host michael neal jr this show is presented by belly up sports the belly up uh sports podcast network belly up media again go to bellyupsports.com check us out you can see all of our shows hear all of our shows through megaphone our home base the favorites apple podcast it's audio Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and also YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about my show or I will find your house. I'm out.